Well, welcome to Ocean View Community Church, to those who are here and to those who are viewing it online. It's our opportunity to grow in our understanding of loving God, loving others, and serving the world. My name's Dwight. I'm uh, uh, part of Ocean View. Uh, I work at Camp Quanos as a maintenance uh, supervisor. Uh, I've been a pastor for 34 years, and I still enjoy the opportunities to preach. And Pastor Darren was taking a break from preaching this week, so a couple of months ago he said, Dwight, would you like to do March 3rd? I thought, yeah, sure, that should be good. Uh, would you do chapter 15 of Revelation? Sure. Then I read Revelation 15. Oh, thanks, Darren. The seven last plagues of God's wrath. Well, break out the fire and brimstone shirt. But as I'm reading through, uh, I discovered 15 and 16 are one unit. 15 is the introduction. 16 is the last plagues. Darren gets to do that next week. <laughs> I will just kind of lead it in and let him take it from there. So uh, he will really get into it next week. But we're going to kind of look at Revelation chapter 15, kind of see what it has to say to us. We've been going through a Revelation series, and it, it's been interesting. You're really coming at it from different perspectives. Darren's kind of really uh, helped us understand what's going on in that uh, end of the first century. You have your elder pastor, the Apostle John. He's the last of the apostles. It's getting near the end of that first century, about 94 AD. He is exiled to the island of Patmos by Caesar Domitian. Caesar Domitian's government has determined that John is a too much of a threat, uh, more of a threat if they actually execute him, so they just sent him to the isle of Patmos, uh, a prison isle. While uh, John is there, God gives him this vision, this apocalypse, uh, which really means an unveiling. And it's an unveiling of Jesus, kind of giving the people of their day who are undergoing a severe persecution. The Christians are severely persecuted. Many are dying for their faith. Some, like John, are being exiled, uh, sent into prison camps. The book of Revelation is a bit like an audio-visual drama. There's costumes, there's stories that have a reality behind the image. Uh, for instance, Jesus is called again and again, he is called a lamb, and then at other times he's called a lion. Now, when I get to heaven and I get to actually meet Jesus, I am not expecting to see a lion or a lamb, I'm expecting to see Jesus. And yet those visuals of the lamb, the sacrifice, the visuals of a lion in power and rule are there. And so those are the, those are the visuals, the symbolisms that are describing a reality all through the book of Revelation. So in, in chapter 15, which is the shortest chapter of Revelation, eight verses, we have a temple, seven angels, seven bowls, seven plagues, a beast, sea of glass, overcomers, and harps. All are symbols, and we want to get to what is the reality behind those symbols. So let me read the chapter first. It's very short, and then we're going to kind of get into it. 
John writes, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chest. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you for this message you give to us. We pray that this morning we can take these, uh, these words, we can apply them to our lives, and we can see how we fit in to your story, the story of the world. Lord, we pray that you would bless our time. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing, I want to look at three things this morning and consider three parts, but first we're going to kind of set the scene. Uh, the temple sanctuary in heaven. So we're going to look at the sanctuary of God. And the verse that actually focuses on that, it says, after this I looked and I saw in heaven the temple. That is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Now, I'm not sure that there is an actual temple in heaven. The idea of the temple is that God is the temple. This, uh, the temple gives that idea that we, God is here. God is in the presence and uh, the temple is a symbol of the presence of God. Being that when it is opened means that we have this access to God. Now, I've got a video clip here that I'm going to show you in a minute. Um, it's uh, an artist's representation of the Temple of Solomon. The Temple of Solomon is no longer there. Uh, the tabernacle is no longer there. The, uh, the Temple of Herod is no longer there. We only have archaeological uh, ideas. We have the descriptions in, in uh, Deuteronomy and, and uh, Exodus that kind of give us an idea of what it might have looked like. Um, but this representation, just understand, everything you see in this is gold, the, the whole interior of the temple. And just get a feeling of what the temple represents. We're going to run that.
Now, I know that made you feel a little bit like Indiana Jones. But what's going on there? You see all that gold, all that, that, that the wonder of going into that temple, and I just want you to understand, not one of you would ever be allowed in there. I would not be allowed in there. Number one, you would have to be Jewish. Number two, you would have to be in the priestly line, up at the highest end of the priestly line to be able to go into that front. And in the back, the Holy of Holies, that back room, only the high priest, once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, he would very carefully go in after doing all the sacrifices, and even then he didn't know if he would be struck dead because he did something wrong, going into the very presence of God. No one ever saw that gold. No one ever saw that other than a very, very few people. This is a representation of that. The front is the Holy of Holies, and like I say, only, only a few priests would go in each day to put out the showbread to burn the incense, and then they would move out. Once a year, in that back, back area, it's a, cube, it's a total cube, 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits. It would have the Ark of the Covenant. It would have all of that other stuff. Only once a year, the high priest goes in there. And why? It was to show the presence of a holy God. Sin could not come into his presence. The priest had to do huge amounts of sacrifices and blood and understanding that all his sin was covered so that he could take the offerings and, and the, the sacrifices for the people in to God. The presence of God. The tabernacle of the testimony of the covenant law, it says in Revelation. Now, that, that's really uh, talking about that Ark of the Covenant that had the, uh, the Ten Commandments, the stone Ten Commandments were in that. And it were symbols of the demands of God's law. Now, not, not so much do this or else. It was more a description. The Ten Commandments were a description of the way that God created us to be and to act with one another. In Moses' day, the tabernacle was called the tent of meeting. And it was a place where Moses and the people had an opportunity to meet with the living God. God's presence was signified by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They knew God was here. God is in the midst of our camp. Smoke and fire represented God is here. It was known as the Shekinah glory. Shekinah means smoke. And the smoke glory, the Shekinah glory of God was visibly present in Israel's day when they were wandering in the desert. They knew God is here. And in Revelation here, he talks about the tabernacle of the covenant law. Given that idea, the presence of God, the place where God's character and nature is revealed and experienced. Uh, in the Old Testament, our next slide here shows... Uh, a representation, actually, in Israel, you can go and you actually visit a, a representation of the tabernacle, the tent that the people carried through the desert. And the word, it's interesting, the word they use is naos. Naos refers to the temple, the actual tabernacle part, that, that part that, uh, with the Holy of Holies and the holy place. The hieron... They didn't use that word. Hieron re refers to the temple complex, all of that other stuff, the altars, the court of the Gentiles in, uh, 
in Herod's day, um, the altar, all of those ways that you got to get to God, offering the sacrifices so that, in a sense, you were getting to get to God. That's the Hieron. In this passage that we're talking about in Revelation, it says the temple of God. It's actually referring to the naos, the presence of God. This is the important thing to get to understand this morning in Revelation 15. This is coming from the very presence of God, the temple of God in heaven, the presence of God. Uh, The next picture just shows uh, a representation again of Herod's temple. That center tall portion is the temple. The rest is the Hieron, the ways that people could come. And ladies, you could get, uh, if you were Jewish, you could get to the court of the Gentiles, past the court of the Gentiles, to the court of women, which was the first part, but you wouldn't get to the court of Israel where the men could go and actually watch the sacrifices, but they couldn't get into the court of the priests where they did the sacrifices and the priests couldn't get into the temple itself other than a few chosen priests each day the presence of a holy God it was to show that God is holy he cannot abide sin and our sinful selves we could only get to a certain point a certain point in that Revelation 15, verse 6. Out of the temple came the seven angels, the seven messengers. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then it says, this comes from God who lives forever and ever. And it talks about the temple was filled with a smoke from the glory of God and from his power. We have these angels dressed in clean linen with golden sashes. Now that was apparel, a dress similar to the garments that were worn by the priests of the Old Testament served in the temple. They had to go through elaborate cleansing rituals to be able to enter the temple, to be able to serve. Now this is also the same imagery that's used of Jesus back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 13. It says that Jesus was among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Again and again, representation of the holiness of God. This is a holy God, and out of his presence, he sends these seven messengers. This is the eternal God who lives forever and ever, the God of glory, the Shekinah glory of God, the God of power. So, after all of that, make no mistake, These seven messengers come directly from God, the perfection of God. As I was studying this, I kind of said, you know, I'm going to go back to my uh, Old Testament or my uh, theology notes from Bible school. The attributes of God, who he is. And and as I got it, you know, we looked through it. And as God is in himself, God is spirit. God is life. God is have personality, has the intellect, emotion, and will. God is infinite. God is self-existent. He, he exists on his own. Nothing created him. No one created him. He exists. He's self-existent. He is unchangeable. God is one. There is only one God. God is perfection. God is truth. God is love. And God is holiness. Now, as he deals with the universe, we learn something else about God. God is eternal 
God is, and click, there we go, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. God is omniscient. He knows all things. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. God is faithful. God is merciful. God is goodness. Then we get to these last two. These are the ones that we sometimes trip up on. God is justice. God is righteousness. God is just. God is righteous. That's where we begin to struggle, but what we begin to look at today in Revelation chapter 15. So we have this first, the sanctuary of God, and it leads us into these seven last plagues. Out of the perfection of God, out of the righteousness of God, out of the holiness of God, out of the justice of God, we have the seven last plagues. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. Now this is the third use of the word signs in Revelation. In Revelation, three times, John, who loves to use this word sign. If you remember in the Gospel of John, seven times uh, John says this was a sign. The first sign uh, was Jesus turning the water into wine. That's in his Gospel, seven signs. Now in the book of Revelation, John again uses the word signs. The first sign was in chapter 12, the woman with child. And the second sign was the dragon attacking the woman. One of the best chapters in the whole Bible, Revelation 12, um, the Christmas dragon. Sometime I will preach that message. I was really ripped off that I didn't get to do that one this year. Darren said 15, and I go, oh, come on, can't I have 12? But anyway, we're in 15, so let's go to 15. Now, the third sign, the seven angels with the seven last plagues. In them, God's wrath is completed. Out of the holiness, righteousness, justice of God, we have these plagues. So that's why the plagues are coming out of the temple. These are not natural disasters. These are emanating directly from God. It is judgment. Judgment on the world. And it says in, in verse 6, Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chest. The temple is open to us and we get a glimpse of the cosmic war that is behind all wars. We see God's messengers allowed to venture out from the presence of the Holy God, these Im images of radiance and purity. Now the last plagues are the natural, automatic reflex of holiness. God's holiness and out of that reflex of it, we have God's justice, the wrath of God. Now, we struggle with this. We struggle with God's wrath, God's justice. However, it is a logical response of holiness to evil and impurity. T.F. Lawrence, in his book, The Apocalypse Today, says this, The wrath which the angels are about to pour upon the earth is a pure and sinless wrath, priestly in its function, and golden in its intensity. No bestial passion, no spite, no hate, no anger of sin at all in it. It isn't out of anger that this wrath comes about. Usually we think of wrath and uh, sometimes our kids do something and we respond with the seven last plagues of God. 
You know, it's a wrath. Don't do that. I've told you a hundred times. No, no, it's not out of anger. This is out of the holiness and justice of God. Justice. You know, we are programmed for justice. If you take a bunch of kids in kindergarten and you give one kid a chocolate bar and none of the others, you will hear about justice. Little kids know about justice. His piece of cake is bigger than mine. And I take it, you can take a ruler and you can barely see the difference, but oh, the children know the difference. They know justice. They're programmed for justice. Teenagers. Teenagers are notorious for justice. And as they get up into a little older and they begin to work at camp and you give one a job and another a job and it's not quite as good, you hear about justice. It's not fair. You come to adults. And sometimes they complain if it's not just. Often it's selfishly, you know, that's not, it impacts me, it impacts my sense of justice. Our stories, movies, books, poetry often focus on rightness and fairness being resolved at the end. Ever watched a movie when the bad guy won at the end? You don't feel good. I mean, we are programmed, it's part of our DNA that uh, the rebellion wins and the evil empire is defeated. Luke Skywalker must win in the end. It's got to happen. It is part of the Judeo-Christian worldview, at least since Jesus. Jesus started that when the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed our storylines, even within, in our movies and everything. And uh, atheistic writers can be writing, but it is, it is a Jesus worldview that wants it justice in the end, right wins. And you know why? Because of the book of Revelation. In the end, God wins, Satan's defeated. God wins, sin is dealt with. God wins, his wrath is completed against all unrightness. God does, doesn't just go to the end and says, oh well, they did bad, but that's it. No, God's wrath is poured out, God's justice is poured out on the wickedness of the world. It is part of God's nature of justice to bring an end to evil and to pour out the justified punishment. Verse 7 goes on to say, One of the four living creatures gave to the seven messengers, seven angels, seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Now this isn't something that we're very familiar with, this golden bowl, like a bowl. Why are you using bowls? I mean, in the rest of Revelation, you hear about trumpets, you hear about seals, but bowls, bowls are kind of weird. It fits exactly in with this whole temple idea. The fiale is the Greek term for this bowl. It would have been very prevalent in the first century in every temple, whether it was a Jewish temple or a Greek temple or a temple to Zeus, a temple to Escapios, it didn't matter. They would use a fiale. The fiele was sort of a, a wide dish bowl that would catch the blood of the sacrifice. As, uh, an animal would be sacrificed. It would catch all the blood. They would then take that bowl of blood and they would do a number of different things with it. 
But in the Jewish circles, that bowl of blood would be taken and it would be thrown against the altar. With blood comes death. The death of the substitute sacrifice. And it would be thrown against the altar. And I can just imagine that altar after years and years and years. It's just covered with this crust of blood. It's ugly. It's terrible. And yet, it talks about the, the, the awfulness of sin. And how death must take place. Jesus is our sacrifice. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. But remember the fiele. This fiele, out of the temple comes this bowl. These bowls, the fiele. Now, the angels have this. They bring the plagues out. It's probably not a literal bowl full of plague stuff. And you have this angel kind of going, there goes North America. Okay, take out London. We're not pouring out ugly stuff. It's a symbol of the reality, the awful reality of judgment. And the imagery gets our attention. There's a series of sevens in Revelation. Darren's talked to us a number of times about seven, that idea of perfection. And I think in Revelation, what we get is recapitulation. Recapitulation. Uh, it's telling us over and over in a different series the same message. We have these events that lead up to the end of the world and the new heaven and the new earth. And we have that told over and over. Uh, Revelation talks, we get all these images, the seven seals leading up to the new creation. And then he goes back to the beginning and he says, starts talking about it all over again and goes up to the new creation with a few more details. And then we do it all over again, taking the same series over and over, telling us about the new creation. And if you look at it, you can see in chapter 68 the seven seals, and then you have the seven trumpets, and then you have in the seven bowls. It's not different, different times. It's telling the same story over and over again. The seven seals are dealing with the suffering church. The seven trumpets are looking at the world and the need of repentance. The seven bowls or the seven plagues are coming from the temple of God, from the throne of God, bringing final judgment. And the bowls and the trumpets are strongly related. There is justice. There is judgment. Just to steal a little bit from chapter 16, what Darren's going to talk to you about next week, here's a comparison of the trumpets and the bowls in this next slide. <clears throat> the trumpets would have been the shofar. That's a ram's horn. And that's what the uh, Jewish people would use in the temple. The, the trumpets, that's the idea of the ram's horn. And then the bulls, the fiele. It's interesting. The first deals with the earth in both of them. The second, the sea. The third, the rivers. The fourth, the sun. Uh, the trumpets. The fifth is pit of evil. And the bulls, it's the throne of the beast. Uh, in the sixth, it's both the Euphrates. And in the seventh, it's thunder. He will reign forever and ever. Chapter 14. And in the bowls, it is there. It is done. It is finished. It's similar to the Exodus stories of Israel being freed from slavery in Egypt after ten plagues. And instead of just Egypt, it is now the world, these plagues coming out on the earth, on the sea, on the rivers, on the sun, on the throne of the beast. It sounds like 
It sounds like Passover. It sounds like uh, Moses freeing the people from Egypt. Only instead of Egypt, it's the whole world. Instead of the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh, it's the hard-heartedness of humanity. But that's next week in chapter 16, so you don't have to worry about that. So out of the temple, we have the seven last plagues. And then I want us to look at the song of the overcomers. Right at the beginning of this chapter, it talks about the victorious ones. I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image over the number of its name. I prefer the use of the word overcomers to the word victorious. Victorious sounds like, hey, you won the game. You were, you were victorious. Overcomers sounds like you were in a battle. And you conquered. Uh, the King James Version uses the word conquerors. We are more than conquerors. It's the same word. Victorious. Overcomers. Conquerors. It is the word, the verb nikeo. You all know the word nikeo. Many of you wear nikeo on your feet. Nikes. The word Nike is the Greek word nikeo, which means the goddess of victory. And so you have this victory over and over in the New Testament, especially in Revelation, nikeo is used. The victorious ones, the overcomers, they overcame. Referring to believers in Jesus Christ who went through trials and troubles and existed on this earth, but they overcame. They won out in the end. How do we prepare for God's justice? How do we prepare for God's wrath? It is coming on this earth, the final judgment, whatever that looks like, however it's going to take place, there is the final judgment. You see, we all fall short of God's goodness, God's holiness. We cannot live up. No one can go into that temple of God's perfection other than a few priests who are, go through elaborate rituals to get there. How do we get to be with God? We all fall short. God's judgment is coming. How can we be saved? You know, we become aware that there is something wrong that needs to change in our lives. Now, we can work and we can try to change it on our own. We can try to be better people. We can go to classes. We can do read books. We can say, how can I be a better person? How can I get rid of sin? But you know, you're never going to get very far. Because you need the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the grave to overcome every sin that we commit against the heart of God. We are often trying to be the center of the story and we realize one day that we're not. We're not the center of the story. God is. And the biggest thing that we can do is to repent before a holy God. And we simply tell Him, God, I have sinned and I'm outside your will, and I need your forgiveness. Why would he forgive us? Our God is so good that he sent his only son, Jesus, who was without sin, who died on a cross for our sins, and who was raised from the dead. And the Bible says that whoever calls on his name, he will hear you, he will forgive you, he will move into your life, and you will become a new person. 
And we say those simple words, Holy God, I am sorry for the wrong I have done. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Holy Spirit, please come into my life. I give it to you. And by that, you become an overcomer. You become a victorious one. One who wins out over sin, over death. It's interesting, Daryl Johnson, who uh, Darren quotes quite a bit throughout this series, made this, this beautiful statement. There is no refuge from the judging God. But there is refuge in the judging God. Mercy. When we fall before him and say, God, I cannot do it. I have to trust in Jesus alone. Like the children of Israel leaving Egypt, as they went through the Red Sea, as they stood at the side of the Red Sea and they saw the sea come and swallow up all the enemies and wash it away and they were finished with Egypt. They stood by the sea and realized that their freedom was secure. And they sang a song in the Song of Moses in uh, Exodus 15. Like them, the overcomers stood at the edge of the heavenly sea and they saw their freedom was secure from the wrath of God. And they sang a song. Like the people in the book of Exodus, they stand beside the sea and sing a song. It says in Revelation 2, verse 3, they held their harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. You often think of harps and angels, don't you? When you get to heaven, you are not going to become an angel. Please don't make that mistake. Uh, so many people say, yeah, when, I, when my little one gets to heaven and becomes an angel, they will not be angels. Angels are very big, scary, scary people with huge swords and you run from them. Read any depiction of an angel in Scripture and man, oh man, they are scary. They are warriors. They don't carry harps. They carry big swords. The overcomers, however, are given harps. And I can hardly wait because I have tried to learn the guitar three times and I've given up. And it says I'm going to get a harp. I hope there are harp lessons and I actually know how to play the thing. Even then, it doesn't really matter. It may not be a literal harp. It is the idea that in music there is joy and celebration and the joy and celebration is freedom. Freedom. Moses' day, they had freedom from Egypt in in uh, Revelation, the overcomers, the believers in Jesus Christ, there is freedom from sin. Freedom from God's wrath. The harps are given to the overcomers, to the saints, to sing songs to God for His great acts. Celebrating His saving activity that began with Moses and finished with the Lamb. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. The deliverance that Moses and the people experienced in the Exodus story reflects forward to the greater deliverance produced by the Lamb. Uh, Pastor Darren talked about that a little bit a couple of weeks ago in Revelation 14. It, it's, uh, it's almost the same as Revelation 15. Remember I said? It's cyclical. You're getting the same story again and again. 14 and 15, very similar. The Song of Moses... The Song of Moses, the literal Song of Moses in, Revelation, in Exodus 15 
is sung by every Jewish person at every Passover. If you've gone through a Passover, you will read the song of Moses and the song of deliverance. They talk about the plagues, and then you have this whole uh, song of deliverance. But now it says the new song is sung in a new way with new meaning because Jesus is the Passover lamb. God has won a greater victory. It is the song of the lamb. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the lamb. The brilliant professor of philosophy at London University was C.E.M. Jode. Now, C.E.M. Jode was not a Christian. Understand that if you look him up on the internet, he was not a Christian. He was a controversial, flamboyant, and gifted speaker of the early 20th centuries, especially during the Second World War, a radio program. Now, he was asked on a radio program, if you could meet any person from the past and ask them just one question, whom would you meet and what question would you ask? Without hesitation, Professor Jode answered, I would meet Jesus Christ and ask him the most important question in the world, did you or did you not rise from the dead? There came a day late in Professor Jode's life, just before he died, when he assessed the evidence, encountered Jesus himself, and he wrote a book called Recovery of Belief. The most important question in the world is, Jesus, did you rise from the dead? Because that's the song of the Lamb. Jesus died, paid the penalty for yours and my sin, and he rose from the dead victorious over sin, that there is victory in Jesus Christ. It makes you an overcomer if you're a follower of Jesus. If the ultimate Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ, is risen from the dead, that changes everything. It is the song of the Lamb. And very briefly, let me quickly look at the song that is recorded in Scripture. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. True and just are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. It's written, uh, it's taken from Scripture. Those are all scriptures, Psalms, Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Psalm 86, Psalm 98. They were just added together. It's written in a Hebrew style. Great and marvelous are your deeds, just and true are your ways. They're the same. It's called parallelism. Lord God Almighty, King of the nations, the second part. That is Hebrew parallelism. It's, just, it's the way they wrote songs. It could have been a hymn that was used by the early church that John is writing. It could be something, but it is definitely built from Scripture verses. It is part of Hebrew parallelism. It is a song. Uh, this next slide shows you something to notice. Notice it's not talking about me and we. It's not saying what I've done, what I need. It's not talking about what the church has done, what the church needs. It is simply saying, great and marvelous are your deeds, your ways. I will not, they will fear you, Lord, your name, you alone are holy, who come before you, your righteous acts have been revealed. It is about God. God is not dead. God is at work. What he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. My time is running. I can't believe I've spoken Revelation 15 for 40 minutes already. I'm sorry. However, let me end with a story. 
that kind of pulls this all together. It comes out of the first century. During the days of Rome, the Roman Empire, the time that the Apostle John and the martyrs, the people who were being killed for their faith, time of Emperor Domitian, there is a feeling in this culture called Via Romana. The Via Romana uh, refers to the Roman roads. With Rome, when Rome came in and they, they took over a country, they built roads. They made commerce happen. With roads came armies and conquests. They could bring the legions quickly from one place to another. But at the same time, they also brought trade and wealth. They brought culture and entertainment. They brought peace and security. One of the reasons the Christian faith grew so fast in the Roman Empire was the Apostle Paul and the other apostles could travel all over the place quickly in peace and security. They could get from here and there and all over and visit the, the, Jew, the people here and the Christians here and the the word of God, the, the Christian faith spread. Now, the Via Romana, the, the, the way of Rome, how Rome operated, is traditionally dated as commencing from the accession of Caesar Augustus in 27 BC, and it concluded roughly in 180 AD with the death of Marcus Aurelius, the last of the good emperors. Caesar Augustus himself was called, note this, Caesar Augustus was called Savior of the World. He was called the Prince of Peace. He was called the Son of God. Direct opposition to who Jesus was. But Jesus was using some of those terminologies that were in the empire at the time. Into this Via Romana, the baby Jesus was born. With the Via Romana came Pax Romana. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. There's the goddess of peace there in that picture. Pax Romana. Pax Romana had a way for everything happening. It kept everybody in its place, everybody doing what they were supposed to do. The rich were rich, the poor were poor. That's the way it was supposed to be. The aristocracy ruled, the slaves did the work. Men did what men do. Women, you had their place. Children had their place. There was the cultured and there was the barbarian. It was a pluralistic society. Everybody could worship whatever God they wanted as long as you didn't disrupt the state. Everything worked in its own way. Religion, politics, economics, everything had its place. But remember, it was religion, politics, and economics that killed Jesus. Into this world, around the time of the Apostle John, Caesar Curios was entered as the way you greeted everyone. Caesar is Lord. Caesar Curios. Caesar Curios. Caesar Curios. If you wanted a business license in the city, you would go to the temple, and in every city there was a temple to Caesar. It kept the unification 
in the empire that was getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and Caesar Domitian realized he was losing control. And so in every town was a temple to Caesar, and you would burn incense and say, Caesar, curios, and you would get your certificate that would allow you to open your little business. Now Christians ran into a trouble because they realized Caesar was not God, Caesar was not Lord. Christus curios, Jesus is Lord. And the Christians struggled in Via Romana. They were considered atheists. Those who worshipped the one true God were considered atheists because they were unpatriotic. They were a threat to the stability of the empire. Jesus is Lord of all, not Caesar, they said. There's only one God, his morals, his standards, his rules of conduct, not Via Romana, not Pax Romana, Via Christus. And it led the overcomers to pick up those discarded babies and raise them in their orphanages. It led the Christians to stay behind and help people who were dying of the plague. Pastor Darren told us about these stories. Within 300 years, it changed an empire. It went from 15,000 believers in 90 A.D. to by 300, uh, 380 A.D., there were about 30 million believers. Now, I want to take us down to North America today. You realize we have Via Americana. We have Pax Americana, the way of America, the peace of America. We have consumerism, self-interest, self-defense, protectionism, stratification, pluralism in our society. This is how it works in North America. This is how you keep the peace in North America Perhaps as an older person, you remember your society as being a guilt society, right? We are taught, we were taught, I'm talking about old people like me, okay? Uh, not young people, old people. Old people like me, we, we understand a guilt society. We were a guilt society. You have sinned. You need to find an answer to that sin. You need to find forgiveness for your sin. And Jesus came and says, I have forgiveness for sin. Uh, our young people today, the young kids that come to camp, aren't a guilt society they are a shame society it has changed moms and dads grandparents understand our society has changed our young people are being plagued by shame you don't fit in you're ugly you don't match you're odd. it is a shame-based society much like japan and some of the asian societies that has infiltrated into north america that is via north mia americana in a shame Based society, they want acceptance. Where do you get ultimate acceptance? Jesus. In our churches, people are coming not to hear, not to believe what you believe. They want to be long. And when many people want to belong before they believe. I don't know, I don't trust what you believe, but I do want to belong. And if you help me belong, I will seek to understand what you believe. So how does a Christian operate in Via Americana? Pax Americana, how do we deal? We will not say Caesar is Lord. We want to say Jesus is Lord. There is a siren song of the world around us, Americana around us saying, do it our way. And as Christians, we go, I can't do that. There's two ways to deal with it. Let me take you some Greek myths. Remember Homer, the Odyssey? 
Odysseus, or Ulysses, is coming back from the Trojan Wars, and this book was written about 800 B.C. And we have the king of Ithaca and his 10-year journey after the Trojan War coming home. And there was a great shipping hazard that he was warned about, the sirens. These women in Greek mythology who lived on these islands, and you would hear, as a sailor, you would hear the siren's song. And the song was so beautiful, it would lure you in, and you would get so close, your ship would get wrecked on the islands, and you would die. And Ulysses said, how am I going to get past those siren songs, these siren women? And so he, uh, he got all his men to put wax in their ears and bind up with claws so they could not hear. But, you know, he was really curious himself, so he got himself tied to the mast. And as they went past the islands and the sirens gave their beautiful music, the men didn't hear it, and they just kept rowing and rowing. And Ulysses screamed for them to let him go. He had to go, but he was tied to the mask. And they finally made it past the siren islands, and they were safe. You know, many Christians try to get through life that way, and many have had to do that. They plug their ears to Via Americana. They tie themselves to the mast, and they, they struggle past Pax Americana that we just get past this society. Don't listen. Don't get involved. Don't hear what the world is throwing at you. There is another way. comes from Greek mythology as well, the quest for the golden fleece by Jason and the Argonauts. Now, Jason did not have the Toronto Argonauts with him. It wouldn't have helped him at all. <coughs> he didn't have the BC Lions either. Jason and the Argonauts, they were in the boat called the Argos, and they were called the Argonauts. They heard about the siren women as well, but Chiron told Jason that he should take Orpheus with him. Now, Orpheus, from what we get the Orpheum Theater in, in Vancouver, Orpheus was a musician, and he had a superhuman ability to play beautiful music. Jason took Orpheus with him. As they got near the islands and the siren women's song was coming up and they heard the beautiful music, Orpheus jumped to the bow of the boat and began to play on his lyre the most beautiful music. It was sweeter. It was better than the music of the sirens and the Argonauts rode right by without moving into the islands because they heard a better song. That's how you deal with Via Romana, Pax Romana. That's what the Apostle John is saying in this passage. The overcomers sang the song of Moses and of the Lamb. It was a better song, a sweeter song, and they were not lured into what the world was throwing at them. May God give us grace to listen to the better song, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Anna, would you come? and pray for us.